0: If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 7 this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible, I would encourage you to follow along in the Pew Bibles. John 7, beginning in verse 1, that can be found on page 948 of the Pew Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, please take that as our gift to you this morning. John chapter 7, verse 1. We're going to jump right into the text. We have a longer text, if you're able I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. (coughs) John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 24. After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee, since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of shelters was near, so his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples can see your works. That you were doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus told him, my time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it. That its works are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not going up to this festival because my time is not yet fully come. After he said these things, he stayed in Galilee. After his brothers had gone up to the festival, then he also went up, not openly, but secretly. The Jews were looking for him at the festival and saying, where is he? And there was a lot of murmuring about him among the crowds. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he's deceiving the people, still Nobody was talking publicly about him for fear of the Jews. When the festival was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Then the Jews were amazed and said, how is this man so learned since he hasn't been trained? Jesus answered them, my teaching isn't mine, but is from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own. The one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Didn't Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You have a demon, the crowds responded. Who is trying to kill you? I performed one work, and you were all amazed, Jesus answered. This is why Moses has given you circumcision, not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? Stop judging according to outward appearances, rather judge according to righteous judgment. Amen. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You can be seated. We come to what is a new section or subsection in the book of John. The major question in chapter 7 and chapter 8 that the text is asking, that everybody is asking, is who is Jesus? Who is Jesus really? Now, you might put yourself in their shoes or their sandals or chacos or slides Think about it as if you were there in Jerusalem, perhaps you've seen some of the signs or heard about him or heard his teaching. Everybody is wondering, who is this wedding-saving, temple-cursing, boy-healing, Samaritan-loving, man-raising, water-walking, food-multiplying, eat-my-flesh preacher? From Jesus' brothers to the crowds in Jerusalem, everybody is wondering, who is Jesus? Now, in Jesus' last sermon and sign, he's demonstrated that he is bred from heaven, come to give life to the world. He is God become man to die for the sins of the world. It's as we receive him by faith, we receive all of him, including his bloodied body, that we receive life. Jesus, in our text this morning, is going to continue to defend his identity, and he's going to distinguish himself from the religious leaders. This is kind of the broad movement of the text this morning. Jesus defends his identity, and he distinguishes himself from the religious leaders. And Jesus is going to do this in three ways, all, again, in contradistinction to the religious leaders of the time. Jesus seeks God's glory. Jesus speaks God's words. And Jesus saves God's people. Again, we'll see Jesus defending his identity, distinguishing himself as he seeks God's glory, as he speaks God's words, and as he saves God's people. First, Jesus seeks God's glory. This stands in contrast with religious leaders, with most in Israel who are instead seeking glory from man. Our first couple of verses begin by giving us context. Verse 1, after this, Jesus traveled in Galilee after this that is after John chapter 6 where Jesus multiplied the loaves Jesus fed the masses Jesus taught his famous bread in flesh sermon this is after Jesus' numbers have dwindled ostensibly from the thousands to the teens after this how much after this if you look at verse 2 John tells us the festival the Jewish festival of shelters was near Now, in John chapter 6, right before Jesus uh, multiplies the bread, John tells us that Passover was near. Now, the time for the festival of shelters is near. It's been six months since since Jesus has multiplied bread, as Jesus has taught about himself as bread come from heaven. Jesus has spent these six months in Galilee, Gentile Galilee, because, verse 1, the Jews were trying to. To kill him. Again, as we saw in the prologue, Jesus came to the world. The world did not recognize him. Jesus came to his own, but they didn't receive him. Verse 2 vividly reminds us that the word became flesh. A true man such that he has to avoid his people because they'll kill him before his time has come. So it's been six months. Although Jesus' numbers have dwindled, his interest is at an all-time high. The Jewish leader's hatred of him is at a fever pitch. Jesus is doing ministry outside of Judea, and the people are wondering not only who is Jesus, but where is Jesus? And John, as he's kind of setting the stage for us, starts stirring the pot a little bit by telling us this festival of shelters was near. There were three obligatory Jewish festivals, meaning Three festivals that every well-abled Jew was required to go to Jerusalem for. The first one was Passover, where Israel celebrated the exodus, their, them coming out of slavery. The second one was Pentecost. Israel celebrated the gift of the law that they received at Sinai. The third one is festival of shelters, in which Israel remembered God's provision to them during their wilderness wanderings. So every well able Jew is required to travel to Jerusalem for what would have been a, a week to celebrate. Basically, if you lived in Jerusalem, you would make a makeshift tent on your roof, on the flat of your roof. You would sleep in it for about a week. If you traveled to Jerusalem, you would make your own kind of tent outside of the city. You would dwell in it for a week. Okay, It's like Jewish Woodstock or something. If this took place in Memphis, you might imagine climbing to the top of the pyramid and looking out or over Peabody or something and seeing tents all over the city. Looking over the river and just seeing tents. Because all of Tennessee has come in to recall God's faithfulness. The people are assembling to recall God's covenant kindness to them as He provided manna from heaven, as He provided water, as He guided them by the light. So God met the needs of his people. They gather to recall it. So here's our context. Everybody's interested in Jesus. The people are mixed as they think about who he is. Jesus has lost most of his followers. The leaders want to kill him. And everybody is coming to Jerusalem at the temple to thank God for, to recall God's provision as he provided bread from heaven, water from the rock, lamp to the world. The stage is set for revelation and confrontation. And Jesus' family agrees, but for different reasons. Look at verse 3. So his brothers, now these are Jesus' brothers, his half-brothers from Mary. It's also an inclusive term. It could mean that he has other family there like cousins. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples can see your works that you're doing. John tells us, if you look down to verse 5, that his brothers don't actually believe. They're not trying to give him good advice. They're skeptical. Like, Jesus, if you're really the Messiah, why don't you go to Jerusalem and prove it? Okay? Like, you spent a lot of time in Galilee for the king of Israel. They go on, verse 4. No one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself the world like jesus it's time to shine okay water into wine at cana is like a cool party trick healing the official son at of capernaum this bush league it's time to go big we're thinking you roll up to jerusalem on a beautiful horse you live stream the whole thing on tiktok so that everybody knows you're coming okay you can't do something in secret if you want public recognition one commentator summarizes their advice nicely. He says, this sounds like a call to Hollywood or Broadway rather than to Galgatha or Bethany. We might modernize it and say it's advice to gain TikTok famous or to get TikTok famous, not gospel faithfulness. Jesus' brothers fundamentally misunderstand the nature of his ministry. If you look at verse 4 again, they think that Jesus wants public recognition. They think that Jesus wants to be popular. They think that Jesus wants to be well thought of and admired by the people. Jesus tells us in John chapter 5 verse 41, I do not accept glory from people. Jesus tells us in John chapter 5 that we actually can't seek the glory that comes from God and the glory that comes from people. They're opposed to one another. Meaning we can't orient ourselves both towards the opinion of God and the opinion of others. We can only have one master. They assume that Jesus has come to gain acceptance from the religious leaders, affirmation from the crowds, acclaim from Israel. No, Jesus, John 6, 38, has come to do the will of the Father. Not to seek the glory from men, but the glory that comes from God. You see, if your goal is public approval, your gospel and your ministry will be tailored to the public. Like Satan tempting Christ in the wilderness or the crowds trying to make Jesus by force, his own brothers are whispering into his ear, build your kingdom the easy way, the comfortable way, the popular way. Brothers and sisters, we can take comfort knowing that Jesus has been tempted in every way that we are. Jesus knows what it's like to have his siblings trying to tempt him toward the world. Jesus knows what it's like having to choose heavenly family over earthly family. He knows what it's like to leave the family table brokenhearted by those who claim to be followers of God. The bottom line is that Jesus' brothers assume that Jesus is after what they're after. They assume that Jesus is after what their religious leaders are after, the praise of men. But Jesus knows you can't seek to please men and God. You can't do the works of God and the works of the world. It's going to put Jesus on a collision course with Israel's leaders. This explains what Jesus says next in verse 6. They're telling him to go do something public, to receive public glory from the people. Jesus says, my time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. Jesus tells us in John chapter 12, verse 23, that the Son indeed has an hour or a time to be glorified, a time to receive public recognition, a time for ascension, In the book of John, paradoxically, it's his crucifixion. I think Jesus is saying, my time for glory has not yet come because my time to die is not yet here. But your time for glory is now. Why? The world loves you. You love the world. Jesus goes on, verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You see, the world doesn't hate people who love the things that it loves. Why would it? To hate something is to be set against it, it's to boil against it, to be opposed to it. There are kind of two ingredients, I think, to hatred. People tend to hate something that's other than them, different, that they perceive as a threat to what they view as good. They perceive it as a threat to their happiness. The world can't hate you if you're not different from it and if it doesn't perceive you as a threat to its perception of the good, right? No one will hate you if you celebrate their works. But if you tell somebody that what they think is good is actually evil, they're going to hate you. To take two evils that are openly celebrated in virtually every square of our culture now. If you tell someone that killing a baby in the womb is bad, but they think it's good, they're going to hate you. If you tell someone that mutilating an adult or worse yet, a child is bad, but they think it's good, they're going to hate you. Brothers and sisters, the world is not after our tolerance. Our silence is not enough. It wants our absolute loyalty. Loyalty. To celebrate its evil works. Jesus is telling his brothers, the world doesn't hate you. Why would it? You don't threaten it. You're not different from it. You don't disagree with it. You don't call it to repentance. You flow with its currents. You only care about its stories. You retweet all of its posts. All of your meaningful definitions for love and good and justice somehow completely align You've come to parrot the world and not God. Why would it hate you? Jesus, I think, tells us why we do this. John 5, 44, you accept the glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. Jesus's brothers, like the crowds, like the leaders, are loved by the world because they love the world. They seek the glory that comes from the world. They give glory back to the world it's a reciprocal relationship it can't be so for the followers of christ jesus says there at the end of verse 7 he's hated by the world why because i testify about it that its works are evil notice there's nothing private about jesus's ethics or his teaching right because they're not opinions it's reality The world hates Jesus because he testifies, he preaches, he proclaims the truth that the world is caved in on itself, that it's turned away from God, that it's dead in its trespasses, that it's already condemned because of its sin, that it's unwilling and unable to rectify its situation. Jesus testifies to the truth that the world is dead and guilty. Brothers and sisters, we cannot be effective salt and light We cannot be fruitful evangelists if we do not testify, if we do not take a stand against the world for its wrongs against God. Preaching the gospel includes a call to repentance. You see, the gospel brings its heralds into a collision course with the world because our message either begins with or has at some point guilty. We can't preach the good news of reconciliation apart from the bad news of estrangement. There is no pardon apart from treason, no life apart from death. I think if we're being honest, the one aspect we most desperately want to avoid when preaching the gospel is actually the one part they need to hear to know their guilt, that, to know their need, which is that they're guilty. Now, of course, brothers and sisters, we don't stop there. Jesus didn't come to wag his finger at us. He's not God's cosmic gotcha. God didn't need to come become mad man to keep a record of our wrongs. We were already condemned. He came to save us. We don't go into the world to simply share bad news. We don't go out to condemn or to look down. But we ought to match the movement of our Savior. We get low. We say you're guilty as we were. Come be forgiven like us. You're sick as we are. Come be healed like us. You're in danger as we were. Come find shelter in the rock who is Christ. Jesus testifies to the world's evil works as a warning so that he can tell them about his good work on its behalf. Brothers and sisters, do you preach the whole gospel? Do you testify to the world's evil works? I don't mean, what are you posting about on social media? I don't mean, are you walking around with some kind of poster on Beale Street? (laughs) I mean, when you're sharing the gospel with your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, are you lovingly and humbly calling them to repentance of sin so that they can trust in Jesus Christ? Litmus test. Does the world hate you? Could it at least hate you? Is there potential for it? Is there difference both in your ethic and your speech? You see, Jesus' brothers want him to be a winner in the eyes of the world. One commentator puts it well. Jesus was not a winner in his time. And the church that is to be faithful to him cannot be a winner in her time either unless she wants to win the whole world at the price of her own soul. We can either work for glory that comes from the world or receive the glory that comes from God. We cannot do both. Jesus is a wonderful model of evangelism because he faithfully preaches, even as it loses him crowds, the religious leaders, his disciples, now even his own family. I know for a fact there's so much heartache in this own room over blood relatives who are not spiritual relatives. Jesus teaches us how to set ourselves upon the will of God, how to strive for and from the glory of God, and how to be confident in God's own mission. Jesus speaks hard truth to them, knowing his words are the vehicle of the Holy Spirit. His brothers, verse 5, they don't believe. They don't believe believe yet after the ascension we see in acts chapter 1 verse 12 the disciples they returned to jerusalem from the mountain olives which is near jerusalem a Sabbath day journey away they were all continually united in prayer along with the women including mary the mother of jesus and his brothers jesus's own brother half-brother james would go on to be a leader in the church of jerusalem It's Jesus' rebuke here, his testifying to the evil works of the world that will lead to their salvation. The bad news comes first, and then the good news. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if there's anyone you've given up on among your own family or close friends. Is there someone you need to have a hard gospel conversation with? How will they know they need to be healed if they do not know they're sick? We testify to the world's evil works that we might testify to God's amazing and good work in giving up His Son for the salvation of sinners like us. I would encourage you over lunch today with other members to talk about someone whom the Lord might have you share the gospel with this month or this year and to pray for them. Jesus here is drawing a hard line between Himself and the world, between Himself and the leaders. He's explaining why He's not trying to build a popular movement. No doubt Jesus desires followers, but not at the expense of what is actually good and true. His aim is to do the will of the Father and to seek His glory. We come to our second point. Jesus speaks God's words. Jesus is going to continue to defend Himself, His identity. He's going to distinguish Himself from Israel's leaders because He speaks God's words. The leaders, again... We'll see. They're hypocrites. They're liars. They use God's word as a prop for themselves. Jesus rather speaks God's words. Jesus goes on, verse eight: Go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not. To, I'm not going up to this festival because my time is not yet fully come. After he said these things, he stayed in Galilee. After his brothers gone up to the festival, then he also went up, not openly but secretly. I think mine has a typo. Verse 8, I'm not going up to the festival. Verse 10, he also went up. I think we'd be honest, this is kind of an awkward text, and it's difficult to understand. There's a basic rule in interpreting Scripture that you interpret something that's less clear by parts more clear. Verse 8, Jesus says he's not going up to this festival. Verse 10, he goes up. Clear parts of Scripture tell us, Exodus 20, that lying is a sin. Numbers 19 tells us that God does not lie second corinthians 5 tells us that christ was without sin more to the point first peter chapter 2 peter tells us that christ did not commit sin and there is no deceit found in his mouth jesus does not sin he is not lied whatever is going on in this text jesus is not lying if he's lying he's not god if he's lying he's not perfect man if he's not lying he can't atone for the sins of the world if he's lying, the whole of what we're doing this morning is a joke, and we should be pitied. So how do we understand this? There's probably six or seven really common ways of understanding it in the history of church. Six or seven. It's like pastoral comments. I think two probably makes sense. Uh, Jesus might simply be saying, I'm not going to the festival now. My time to go to it has not come yet. And maybe more to the point, Jesus is is pointing out he's not taking orders from his brothers. He's waiting for his father. This is consistent with what we've seen a couple other times or we'll see in the book of John. You'll recall in John chapter 2, when Jesus is at the wedding, his mother tells him that the wine has run out, and he says, my time has not yet come. And then something happens, and Jesus springs into action. Likely, he's received a directive from the father. My time has not yet come. Well, now his time comes, and he goes to work. John 11, Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick. He waits two days. Why? Perhaps he gains directive from the Father. Jesus doesn't take orders from us. So it might simply mean that Jesus is saying, I'm not going to the festival now. My time to go has not yet come. He's not saying he never will go. That's kind of one way that I think makes sense. A second way, Jesus could simply be saying he's not going to the festival in the manner in which they want him to go. They're telling Jesus to go loud, to go to receive public acclamation, and acceptance jesus saying he's not going to do that like he's not the messiah that they want john is kind of giving us these clues with them talking about you're working in secret you need to go publicly jesus doesn't go openly rather he goes secretly maybe jesus is just saying he's not going to go in the manner in which they want him to go i don't really know it's okay for us to acknowledge when we don't know and then we can trust god we trust Jesus' words because they are the very words of god They're true words. They're life-giving words. Now, moving on, verse 11 takes us to the festival. The Jews, again, these are the leaders, were looking for him at the festival and saying, where is he? Again, every able Jew is required to go. And there was a lot of murmuring about him among the crowds. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he's deceiving the people. So Israel's population is packed in Jerusalem, and there's one person on everybody's mind, and the people are debating about it. Like, I heard he healed a guy. Yeah, but he did on the Sabbath. I was like, oh, true, true, true. I heard he multiplied the loaves. Yeah, but then he said, "Eat my body." Oh, true, true. You know, <clears throat> the response to Christ from the crowds is mixed. At best, we get he's a good man. At worst, he's actually a liar. People say he's a liar. Did you hear what he told his brothers? (laughs) No. And the Jews are looking for him. Verse 11. Why? Verse 1. They want to kill him. Now, at this point, their intentions with him are probably not public, but their animosity is clear to everybody. Look at verse 13. Still, nobody was talking publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Everyone's there. Everybody's talking about Jesus, but you can't do it publicly. So you're talking about them um, like, "Will the Messiah do more than him. It's, oh, no, they're coming, they're coming. And you're just talking about something random like, the tents, tents are really nice this year. <laughs> yeah, a lot, of, a lot of blue tents, a lot, a lot of blue tents. You get a sense for what kind of religious leaders Israel had, what their oversight and care must have felt like. There's no freedom to actually talk about the word of God. A possible Messiah is in their midst, and yet they've so clamped down there's no real God talk. This is the kind of shepherds that God condemned in Ezekiel chapter 34. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the Lord God says to the shepherds Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves, shouldn't the shepherds feed their flock? You eat the fat, wear the wool, and butcher the fattened animals, but you do not tend to the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. Indeed, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty." Jesus has come to save us from shepherds like this. They can't even talk openly about their great hope, about their scriptures, because they've clamped down on real God talk. Brothers and sisters, if you ever find yourselves in a position where you can't approach your pastors, there's either something wrong with you or with them. That's not healthy. If it's your pastor's fault, all of them collectively, you should fire them or find a different church. Jesus came to rescue us from such bad shepherds. It's to him, those who want to kill him, that he goes. Verse 14, when the festival was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Then the Jews were amazed. Could you imagine hearing Jesus preach? I think about the last time your heart has just set ablaze as you heard preaching. Wouldn't even compare to listening to Jesus. The connections he's unearthing in scripture, the redemption narrative he's unfolding, the glory of God he's bringing before their eyes, the words he's choosing to paint God's love for them. Jesus teaches in such a way that when the Spirit moves, scales fall off, shadows recede, and hearts burn. Why? He's the eternal word of God. Everybody's amazed, even the Jews who want to kill him. They're like, I hate that guy. But boy can preach. And more specifically, what's blowing their minds, if you look there at the end of verse 15, they're saying, How is this man so learned since he hasn't been trained? Like he hasn't gone to school. How does he know so much? Today, to be an authority on anything, all you need is an email account and a Wi Fi. <laughs> Bonus if you got a camera. You sit down in front of your keyboard, see where the wind's going. What am I thinking about global markets today? Then the religious leaders went, they underwent extensive schooling and apprenticeship. These guys have undergone so much training. They've memorized so much scripture. They understand their rabbinical tradition so well. They make me look like a dummy. Jesus hasn't gone to any of their schools, and yet he knows so much. This is why they're amazed. Imagine that you're a doctor or a nurse, you have a patient who's in the OR, they have a thoracic aneurysm caused by a dissection, there's a slight tear in their aortic valve in the chest, you're there in the operating room, and then this, um, (coughs) excuse me, sorry, this stay-at-home mom busting a surgery, she's wearing on-clouds, yoga pants, she takes over, she crushes it, right, it's like watching Masterclass in heart surgery dude might as well have gotten a new heart what should have taken 20 years of education and training she knows how to do they're amazed they're saying he hasn't been trained make no mistake jesus is educated he's not he just didn't go to any of their schools he goes on verse 16 jesus answered them my teaching isn't mine but it's from the one who sent me jesus school is heaven his teacher is the father John 8, 28, Jesus tells us, I do nothing on my own, but just as the Father taught me, I say these things. Jesus went to school every day as he sat in word and prayer, only doing what he sees, only speaking as he hears. Brothers and sisters, no doubt Jesus is a class unto himself. He is the eternal word of God. The spirit rests on him without measure. The Bible is about him. But this should also encourage us. You don't have to be seminary trained to be educated in the things of God. Right? You don't need a degree to be godly. You don't need an MA or a PhD. You don't even need a GED. You just need your Bible and the Spirit of God in the context of the church. The religious leaders would be amazed by the very same thing in Acts chapter 4. Listen to this. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. God loves using people that the world views as common and untrained and weak to do extraordinary things. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that we don't care about education. We do. God himself educates us through word and sacrament in the church. Schools can be helpful toward that end. But we don't need letters to justify our preaching. God invites us to come and to learn from him every single day and every week. Jesus is inviting them to learn from him. He's publicly teaching that they, even they, the ones who would kill him, would learn from him. And yet there's a problem, as we've seen throughout the book of John, verse 17. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. Kind of put in the negative sense, if you don't want to do the will of God, you won't be able to understand my teaching. People don't grasp Jesus' teaching, not because it's beyond their intellectual capacities, but because it's beyond their moral inclinations. Jesus is saying if you actually cared about the things of God, you would recognize his voice right now. Like if you know and love God's word, you'll accept it when it comes to you, but you don't. Perhaps most simply put, if you believe in God, you'll believe what comes from God. At the heart of this issue here, their inability to receive Christ's teaching, is the question of whose glory you're after. You won't hear God's voice if you're seeking other people's glory. Verse 18, Jesus goes on again, distinguishing himself, defending his identity. He says, The one who speaks on his own seeks his glory. The one who speaks on his own, not from the word of God, the one who speaks on his own is seeking his own glory. These are the religious leaders speaking not from God but from themselves. Ezekiel, again in chapter 13, gives a pronouncement about these kind of leaders. Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying. Say to those who prophesy out of their own imagination, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says. Woe to those foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Where there is false teaching, you can be sure of two things. They're teaching from their own imagination out of their own spirit even if they're using the word of God as a prop and they're teaching for themselves they're not giving people the pure and unfiltered water from the rock of ages they're twisting they're deceiving they're telling the people what they want to hear their scratching ears so that they themselves will hear back what they want to hear brothers and sisters it is a wicked thing to use the things of God as props to steal glory from him Jesus is testifying to their evil works. He's speaking of them. Now he speaks of himself. He says, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, is true, and there was nothing unrighteousness. Sorry, there was no unrighteousness in him. We see that Jesus, these are related, seeks God's glory, and he speaks God's word. We come now to our last point. Jesus defends his identity as the God-man. He distinguishes himself from Israel's leaders, Because he saves God's people. Jesus saves, he heals, he restores. He's the fulfillment of all of Israel's signs. Israel's leaders are so fixated on the signs that they're actually standing in the way of salvation. Now Jesus has told us that there's this moral or spiritual element to understanding. If your will is not aligned with God, you can't grasp Christ's own teaching. Jesus is going to put forth a piece of evidence to show them beyond a shadow of a doubt, that they don't do God's will. He's got the smoking gun, as it were. Jesus says, verse 19, didn't Moses give you the law? The Mosaic law reveals God's will. Jesus goes on, yet none of you keeps the law. Okay, bold assertion. Jesus gives proof. He's saying you have the law, you say you keep the law. At the end of verse 19, why are you trying to kill me? They respond, verse 20, like, what are you, crazy? Worse yet, what do you have, a demon? Now, Jesus is going to unravel their hypocrisy all the more. Verse 21, I, prefer, I performed one work, and you are all amazed. Now, you recall, all of this stems back to one work that Jesus performed in John chapter 5. There in Jerusalem, there was a man who had been a paralytic for 38 years, overlooked and ignored by the religious leaders, Jesus healed him. He made him well by the power of his creative word. But it was on the Sabbath. The Mosaic law prohibits working on the Sabbath. So the religious leaders that go to investigate, you might imagine if you were on private land and security comes up to you for trespassing, you're able to demonstrate, oh, this is actually my father's property, You have paperwork or something. They say, okay, sorry, sir, sorry, ma'am. Jesus, did you work on the Sabbath? He's like, oh, I see the confusion here. God works on the Sabbath. That's what I do. I work on the Sabbath. (laughs) It's like whatever Sabbath exemption you grant the Father, you go ahead and give it to me. He's been working from the beginning, and so do I. Now they're thinking, okay, Sabbath breaking and blasphemy. They want to kill Jesus. Jesus healed a man. He made somebody whole. This man can now actually go to temple for the first time in 38 years, and they want to kill him. But don't miss this. They don't hate Jesus because he worked on the Sabbath. They hate Jesus because he testified to their evil works. In healing the man, it was an indictment against them. They would rather withhold life. Now Jesus is calling them out for actually wanting to take life. You see, they hate Jesus because glory is a zero-sum game. Whatever glory the Son wins for the Father, he's taking from them. Jesus impresses in, he gives closing arguments, as it were, in verses 22 and 23. It's kind of convoluted. I'm going to read it and explain it. Jesus says, this is why Moses has given you circumcision. Not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? So the Mosaic law commands rest from work on the Sabbath. The Mosaic law also commands circumcision on the eighth day of a boy's life. That would sometimes fall on the Sabbath. Israel's leaders had to make a decision about which law they were going to uphold. Do we uphold the Sabbath? Or do we uphold circumcision? What in this case is taking precedent? They would still circumcise a boy on the Sabbath for two reasons. First, circumcision comes first. Jesus points this out, even he says, not that it came from Moses, it came from the fathers. Paul makes the same argument in Galatians chapter 3. The Mosaic covenant came later. It doesn't cancel or nullify the Abrahamic covenant. So there's kind of an argument from time. There's also an argument from weight or substance. Secondly, so this is because of what circumcision meant. Circumcision is what included males into the covenant community. Genesis 17.10, it marked out the line for the Messiah It was an ever-present sign to them, Deuteronomy 10, 16, of their need for a new heart. It was also a sign to them that if they broke the covenant, they would be cut off from God's people and his salvation. So circumcision brought men into God's people where God's saving works took place and it pointed them to their need for a savior. Jesus says, because circumcision comes first, it's older, because of what it signifies, you do it on the eighth day, it doesn't matter if it's Passover or Sabbath. It doesn't make you a lawbreaker. You actually do it to uphold the law so it won't be broken. It came first. It signifies something better, man's wholeness. This is why Jesus says, this is why Moses has given you circumcision. Why did he give it? The goal, the desire, the end, what it pointed to is man's wholeness, his health, his purity, his restoration, his reconciliation to God, his recreation circumcision was given to Israel so that man would know his need for the Messiah to save him from his sin. Sabbath was given so that Israel would know its need for eternal rest. So here comes Jesus, the fulfillment of both circumcision and the Sabbath. And in one act with one word, he demonstrates who he is and what he's come to do. He's God become man. He's Israel's Messiah. He's here to make man whole and give him rest. This is why Moses gave you circumcision. Everything that Israel's scriptures pointed to is here. The God who provided for them in the wilderness is here. The bread from heaven is here. Water from the rock is here. The lamp of the world is here. The one who circumcises hearts is here. The one who gives our souls the rest it longs for is here. Moses gave you circumcision so that you would be waiting for me, the one who makes you whole. What Jesus brought is better And it came first, long before the law was given to Moses, long before circumcision was given to Abraham, before time itself was created, John 6, 37, the Father gave a people to his Son. Ephesians 1, 4, the Father chose a people in his Son before the foundation of the earth. This plan of redemption is older than time, and it's better than the law. Circumcision does little for the flesh and nothing for the heart. Jesus actually makes us new. And he's inviting them, yes, they who plot to kill him, to listen well, that they might choose well. This is why he says there in verse 24, Stop judging according to outward appearances, rather judge according to righteous judgment. He's telling them if their will is actually aligned with God, if they actually discern the evidence in a way that's spiritual and righteous, they would see that he is who he says he is. The problem, however, we've seen in the book of John is we don't actually do God's will. We don't desire the things of God. We need new birth because we're dead, and their works will prove it. Jesus here is putting forth one of their works and one of his works. One of their works, one of his works, it tells the entire gospel story. Jesus brought a man to wholeness by healing him. They want to kill him for it. The law says do not murder. Jesus then goes and makes a man well. They look at the law and Jesus' act of goodness and they want to kill him for it. Is there a clearer picture of our corruption and God's redemption? We crush the weak. He lifts them up. We break the law. He upholds it. We cause death. He gives life. In fact, it's by his death, the death we cause, that he gives us life. This is the gospel. It's the good news of the gospel that while our works are evil, while we were still sinners, Jesus came to die for us. He is the good physician who came to make us whole and to give us rest. What we intended for evil and hatred on the cross, God has purposed for love. It was there that he paid the punishment that was due to us. Jesus is God, the son, come to speak God's word and to save God's people that we may dwell in his glorious light forever. May all glory be to him. Let's pray. God, we do praise you and thank you that though our works were evil, that though we rejected you and your Son, that in your loving kindness, you've made a way for our salvation. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the revelation of God, that he speaks your words, that he points us to your glory, and that he saves us, that he makes us new. God, I pray that through the preaching of the word this morning, that your son would be exalted, that all of us would be drawn to him. We thank you for your loving kindness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll invite you to stand with me. We'll continue to worship God through song.